Good morning, you guys. Good morning. It is really good to see you guys here. So many faces, so many people I love. Um, yeah, that's a good morning this morning. Um, man. We are nearing the end of our study through the book of John. We, gotta, we have a few weeks left. Or I guess this is it's this week, next week, and then I think in, here in a couple weeks is our last week of John. I feel like we've been in John for forever. Um, but we are... Uh, we're going to close it out here in a little bit. Um, as Mark uh, beautifully covered last week, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead and has revealed himself to the most unlikely kind of person in his culture, uh, in Mary Magdalene. And as we pick up in our narrative this week, uh, this, the story begins to shift back to the disciples. Uh, Peter and John have seen the empty tomb, and Scripture tells us that John believed in his heart that Jesus had been resurrected, but not everyone has reached the same conclusion. This morning for the text, I, I really want you to put on your, your empathy glasses. If you don't wear glasses, it's fine. Just, just pretend. If you need to actually do this, that's totally fine too. But, oh, I love it. Y'all are wonderful. I was like, <laughs> Fellowship Nashville is so great. Half of you just love it. We're going to really, I really want y'all to flex your empathy muscles this morning. As we read about what the disciples experienced on the Sunday afternoon that we're about to walk through, I want you to try and understand what must be going on inside of their, inside of their hearts. What must they be feeling in these moments? Because we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of this, these disciples, and then more specifically in the shoes of Thomas. I, uh, I, I struggled to figure out a good question to ask this morning because there are, there are a lot of complex feelings and emotions that are ha- kind of happening in this text. But I settled on this. Uh, I wanted to pose this to you guys this morning. It's kind of a heavy one. When you're at your lowest, when you're at your lowest, how do you feel God sees you? I'm not looking for the Bible answer. I'm not like, Jesus. Like, I'm, not, I'm looking, I, I want you to really, really check your heart. And I really want you to process, like, when you're at those low moments, how do you feel like God sees you? And I'm not talking like, oh, it's been a really long day. And those days, those days are hard sometimes. But I'm talking, I'm talking the lowest. I'm talking, I don't know I don't know if tomorrow's going to come for me. I, I, don't, I, don't know why, I don't know why I'm still here. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. How do you think, how do you feel God sees you? For many of us, it might be like a, a kind of a cross-armed, scowling God, maybe with his back to you in disappointment who's ashamed and annoyed at your failure. And for some, it might be a furious God who screams and yells because of how angry and disgusted he is with with us. If we're honest, I think a lot of us can fall into a category on one of those sides of the spectrum. This morning, we're going to get a clear picture of how Jesus interacts with us in our lowest moments. And for the sake of organization, I wanted us to focus in on three things that are exemplified in the text 
three things that we get to experience because of Jesus. We have one, peace in Christ, two, purpose in Christ, because we are three, pursued by Christ. Does that make sense? We have peace in Christ and purpose in Christ because we are pursued by Christ. These themes are all over the text, so we we might be bouncing around a little bit this morning, but it's going to be a good one, you guys. So if y'all could stand with me this morning, open up your Bibles, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. And if you don't have any Bibles, we'll have the text on the screen back there. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, You have... Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Would you all pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word for the ability that we have to to explore it and to read it and to further understand who you are and to grow deeper and closer to you, God. I pray you give us open minds and open hearts to receive everything that you want us to this morning. We love you so much, God, and it's because you loved us first. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Y'all can sit down. All right. Y'all got your empathy glasses on? Y'all are so great. I love it. Y'all are wonderful. All right, let's go. Verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The disciples were behind locked doors and they were afraid. We don't know which disciples were there in this moment. All we know for sure is that Thomas wasn't there, which we'll see here in a second, and that John was there because he's the eyewitness testimony. Their Savior is dead, and they are scared. Why are they scared? Logically, the disciples are led to believe, which I think is fair, that they are next on the chief priest's hit list. 
The Jewish authorities had their rabbi killed, and they were next. I don't think this is a bad assumption when we consider who the chief priests wanted to place near the tomb after Jesus was buried. They placed guards. Matthew 27 informs us that the whole reason they put guards up around Jesus' tomb is because the chief priests and the Pharisees were concerned that the disciples were going to come and steal Jesus' body and claim that he had resurrected from the dead. Considering the fact that Jesus himself had said multiple times that he was going to rise again after three days. And I went and, I went and scoured scripture to see all the, all the texts I could find that where it's, it's explicitly says he's going to rise again after three days. And we've got Matthew 16, 21, 17, 23, 2019, Mark 8, 31, 9, 31, 10, 34, Luke 9, 22, and 18, 31 through 33. He said it a bunch of times. And these are, the only, these are just the ones we have recorded. The disciples were on the radar of the Jewish leadership, and the disciples knew it. Now, Here's where the empathy glasses are really going to start becoming useful. If Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, which the disciples aren't fully aware of, obviously he had been, but they weren't aware of this yet. If Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, what hope would they have had? They wouldn't, not, the answer is none. They wouldn't have any hope. If, in fact, Jesus had not conquered death, hiding away in fear would have been a very appropriate response by the disciples. Not only would the lack of a resurrection mean danger and torture was bound to befall the disciples in this life at the hands of Rome and their own people, but it also means that any hope of being made right before the wrath of God after this life was over was utterly extinguished. Hiding behind locked doors doesn't seem like the most outlandish response to me if this was the reality, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. Then, Jesus appears to his disciples. And what does he say? What does he say when he appears to his disciples? Peace. Peace, peace be with you. That phrase, peace be with you, it's two Greek words. It's peace and then to you, kind of the, the indicator of who the peace is to. But the meat of that phrase is that word peace. In, in it, it, yeah, it's so cool. It's the Greek word irene, it's that Greek word peace, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew word shalom. Most of y'all have probably, a lot of y'all have probably heard that word before, shalom. Now for most of us, the word peace most likely means, uh, or rather refers to the lack of something when we think of peace. Like I'm at peace when I finish a big project, I, I, you know, the weight has been lifted off me, I don't have this project anymore, therefore I'm at peace. Or, or a nation is at peace when they aren't at war. So when there's a removal of war, they're at peace. Or if there's a lack of war, then a nation is at peace. In the Bible, the word peace not only means the absence of bad things, but it also refers to the replacement of something better. Shalom is a word that refers to a state of completeness, of, of, of wholeness. And I want to give you all a couple examples real quick from the, from the Old Testament. In Proverbs 16, 7, I'll just read it out to you for you guys. It says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies 
to be at peace with him. Shalom is used in reference to repairing relationships with your enemies. And then in Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 and 4, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. That word, he shall pay and he shall repay, both more literally translated can mean he shall restore. It's that word shalom again. So shalom is not just the absence of bad things, it is the renewal and completion of what was broken. And that's what we have because of Jesus. That's point number one. We have peace in Christ. The Gospel of John is written in Greek. It's the translation we had. It's written in Greek. But Jesus and his disciples spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. So when Jesus appears and says, peace be with you, he's greeting them with shalom. What makes this the greatest shalom in the history of shaloms is what kind of wholeness he's bringing. This isn't just a, have peace, you guys, I'm here, like, you know, I'm not a ghost, it's okay. It's, it's way more than that. This is a, you don't have to be afraid because you are complete and whole in me. The weight you carry from your mistakes that you've made, the brokenness that you have in your sin, that's done. You are complete in me. You are whole in me. You are shalom in me. In the ESV, it says the disciples were glad when they heard this. I don't think that word glad, the English word glad, quite gets the full picture of what is being expressed here in the Greek. In the NIV, it says overjoyed. And in the NASB, NASB, and the NET, it says rejoice. They rejoiced. They were freaking out. Oh my gosh, it's Jesus. And they're just like, oh man, we're so happy. It was, they were overjoyed. Jesus isn't just greeting them as a friend. He has freed them as their savior. It, I'll, I'll be honest, guys. I, I, I put a little note here because I think it was so funny. I, I, I could have honestly spent the entire time on just these two verses. There's so much happening in just these two verses. And I, while I was preparing for this, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to move on to the rest of the text. But I, there's just so much richness in here. I had to force myself to move on. Um, I really could have spent like half an hour just on those two verses. Um, verses 21 and 20, through 23. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. For all of you Bible scholars out there, verse 22 might feel kind of like a little bit of a hurdle. When the author, John, wrote his gospel, the, the unified work of Luke-Acts, so the gospel of Luke and, and Acts, were already written and they were already in circulation. People were already reading them in all the churches. So John, as well as the audience that John is writing to, is fully aware of what happened at Pentecost and what was recorded in Acts chapter 2, 
which is when the disciples received the Holy Spirit. So John knew because he was there. He was at Pentecost. And his audience, maybe some of his audience was there at Pentecost, but they know what happened because it had been recorded by Luke and, and Acts. And they, 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 they have already read, they already know what happened. The disciples wouldn't receive the Holy Spirit until Jesus had already ascended into heaven. So what do we make of this moment of Jesus breathing on his disciples? Feels like kind of a hurdle, but as we dive in, it is actually really, really cool. The first time we see the Holy Spirit in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So obviously, the Holy Spirit, part of the triune God, he's it's all, an eternal. He has been here for eternity. The first time we see him in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters before creation. And the Hebrew word, this is a super cool Hebrew word, is the word ruach. You have to like get a lump in your throat when you say it, the word ruach, which we translate as spirit most places. But I want you guys to take a wild guess at what that word also means. What is Jesus doing to his disciples? Y'all can say it, it's fine. It means breath. That word means breath. I'm not, this is, this is in the Bible, this is, it means breath. And the Greek word that Jesus says when he says receive the Holy Spirit is the word pneuma. And I want you to take a wild guess what that word also means. It means breath. I'm, I'm guys, I'm so, I, I know, it's like, I'm such a nerd, but also like, in reality, the more you read God's word, every, you can read it a thousand times and you will, you will see something deeper and deeper. And the more you read it, the more it just kind of goes, oh my gosh, it all just connects. It all makes sense. It's all on purpose. So anytime we read it and we go, I don't know, that doesn't make any sense. But it always oh, it fits so perfectly. This is a symbolic moment, a moment that is looking forward to the day that the spirit will come. Jesus breathes on them so that when they hear the rushing wind as the Spirit comes in fire, they will know that this gift is from the Lord. They would remember their Savior's words, receive the Holy Spirit. We also see another hurdle or seeming hurdle in verse 23. And if we were to read it without context, it kind of sounds like Jesus is giving his disciples the authority to decide who gets to be forgiven and who doesn't. Isaiah 43 verse 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Obviously, God is the one who forgives us our sins, not our disciples. So what do we make of this verse? I want to give you all a comparative example. So if, if, we, if we went down to Frothy to go get some coffee, if we went down to Frothy, we're going to go buy a cup of coffee, and I said, pick any coffee. If you say you want to purchase it, then it will already have been purchased. But if you say you don't want to purchase it, if you don't want a specific coffee, then it won't have been purchased. So like if you're like, I really want an Americano, I'd be like, you're in luck. It's already been paid for. I'd be like, well, I don't want you know, the pumpkin spice, whatever. You'd be like, well, you're in luck. It hasn't been paid for. Does that mean that you can buy whatever you want? No, not really. 
It means if you ask for coffee, it's covered. But if you don't ask for coffee, then it hasn't been covered. It's not a perfect example because it would require me to already know what you're going to ask for. And, I'm, you know, I'm not all powerful and I don't know everything. So it, kind of, it falls apart a little bit there. But I think the point is still there. If it still doesn't make sense, I want you to go back to the verse and I want you to read it this way. This is a more literal translation. Those whose sins you forgive have already been forgiven. And those whose sins you do not forgive have not been forgiven. That's, that's what we have because of Jesus. This is point number two. We have purpose in Christ. What, what has Jesus said in verse 21? He says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. When we spread the gospel, we are telling people about Jesus, obviously. And if your ears are truly open to God's word this morning, and that the love of Christ is hitting you between the eyes for the first time, that would be amazing if that was true. For some reason, it's just connecting with you. I'm not the one who's forgiving you of your sins. Obviously. It's not the pastor. It's not the elder. I'm not the one who is granting you forgiveness. That responsibility doesn't fall on me. The disciples aren't the ones who will forgive you of your sins either. If you trust in the Lord with all your heart today, it means your sins were forgiven at the cross. It means your sins were on the back of Jesus as he died a death that was supposed to be for me, that was supposed to be for you. That's when your sins were forgiven, if you believe. Our purpose in Christ is to be emissaries of Christ, to be ambassadors of Christ, to be representatives of Christ. We are not Christ ourselves. The saving power of the cross is not dependent on whether I am an active participant in Jesus' calling. The reason I am an active participant in Jesus' calling is because of the saving power of the cross. So we can't put the cart before the horse here. The reason I am an active participant is because of the cross. The cross came first. It's like when, it's like when, I, when I say, Lord, I love you, it's because you love it. Like, we love God because we, it, it, we don't say, I love you, God, and he says, I love you too. He says, I love you, and we say, I love you too, back. It's the same thing with the cross. Our sins were taken care of at the cross, and so if you believe today, if you're an active participant today, the gospel isn't, de- isn't dependent on you. We are welcomed in to be participants. God invites us into that. By his grace and mercy, he invites us to be a participant in his plan. Despite our weakness, he gives us purpose. Verse 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. I want to sit with this guy Thomas for a second. Most of you guys know him as Doubting Thomas. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you've probably heard of Doubting Thomas. It's because of this passage that we're reading. And I found because of that, we often look at this moment, or at least I did as a kid, and kind of like scoffed at him a little bit. Like, oh my gosh, why, didn't he, why doesn't he just believe? Like, why is he so mopey? He's just like, oh, I'll never. Like, that's at least how I was like, oh, I'll never, unless I can. Like, why don't you just believe? 
But I want, us, I, I want us to look a little deeper into what's happening right now with Thomas. This isn't the first time we hear about Thomas. In John chapter 11, we saw Jesus about to make his way. We, you know, we covered John 11 a long time ago, obviously. I'm making a call back. He was, on his way to, he was going to make his way to Bethany near Jerusalem to raise Lazarus from the dead. And the disciples plead with Jesus not to go since the chief priests were wanting to kill Jesus at this point. And when Jesus tells him he's going to go anyway, Thomas pipes up in John chapter 11, verse 16 by saying, let us go that we may die with him. It's not Peter, it's not John, it's not James, it's Thomas. Guys, Thomas is bold. This guy is bold. He says, I, I want to be with Jesus to the point of death. If I can't live with Jesus, I want to die with Jesus. That's boldness. With that in mind, again, we've already got our empathy glasses on, which is good. How must Thomas be feeling right now? I want you guys to notice this. In these moments of mourning, again, you know, we're, we're, we have the overview of like, Jesus is alive. Yes, he did it. The disciples are still in mourning. Their, their Savior is dead. And so in these moments of mourning and sadness, after the death of their rabbi, Thomas is not with the other disciples. The only people who truly know what he's going through, these brothers that he's been walking with for the past three plus years, he's, he's away from them, possibly alone. He very well could be alone. Thomas's worst fear has been realized. He is living his life without Jesus. So when we read this response to the disciples seeking him, I don't want us to read it like a grumpy old man kind of saying, bah humbug, and waving off the disciples. He's likely in a deep, depressive state of mourning. As his Savior is arrested, beaten, and killed, Thomas isn't standing by his side like he always wanted to. He's hiding. His Savior died, and he wasn't there to die with him. You guys, Thomas is inconsolable. This guy wanted to die with Jesus. If he can't live with Jesus, he wanted to die with Jesus. Jesus was gone, and Thomas was still fine. That's his, that is literally Thomas's worst fear coming to light. Verse 26 through 29. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus shows up, shalom, Thomas, it's me. We're good. I'm alive. Put your finger in my side. Put your finger in my hands. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas is freaking, he rejoices. Oh my, my Lord and my God, you're alive. He's freaking out. Jesus then makes a point to speak blessing over those who have believed without seeing and yet 
he still met Thomas where he was. He still made the move, dropped right in the middle of his sadness and turmoil, and allows his disciple to see so that he can believe. He literally says it. Don't disbelieve. Now that you're doing this, put, hey, do this thing that you said you needed to do. Don't disbelieve, but believe. That is what Jesus does for us. Point number three, we are pursued by Christ. You know what I love most about these moments? I kind of touched on it already. But Jesus is the one that comes to his disciples, not the other way around. Does he have every right to sit and wait for his disciples to, to show up? Sure. He, but he doesn't, he doesn't come to them in frustration and say, do you know how many times I told you that I was coming back? I read them for you guys. Do you know how many times I told you that I was going to die, but I was going to come back again? We hung out for years. You should know this by now. Do you know how many scripture passages there are in the Old Testament about be strong and courageous, don't be afraid, I'm with you wherever you go. Do you know how many of those are, are like, but you're hiding in fear? I can't believe I told you point blank and you still don't believe. Why haven't you figured this out yet? He doesn't say that. Nothing close to that. He just comes in. So true it is also with us. He doesn't wait outside your pain, waiting for you to figure it out. He doesn't cross his arms and roll his eyes. If he did, listen to me, if he did do that, if that was his attitude, he wouldn't have come to earth in the first place. God's presence on earth is him actively saying, I adore you, so I'm coming for you. I'm coming after you. I'm living in this sinful world perfectly for you. I have made myself human for you. I took on flesh for you. That is him, that is him making the move. I know for an absolute fact that some of you in this room are feeling inadequate or less than or, 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 or not good enough for Jesus because someone has told you somewhere in your life that you have to be clean for Jesus. That you have to, that you have to, you have to have everything figured out for Jesus. That Jesus doesn't take used goods. That Jesus doesn't take broken things. I know I, I heard, I grew up in the church. I heard that growing up. I've heard that before. I know you guys have too. Those are lies. Those are lies. I make, those, those phrases will be screamed in hell someday. Those are lies. If you guys have that feeling in your brain or in your heart of the, I need to make myself good enough for Jesus, that is a lie. Hear that from my voice. Those are lies. Jesus wants you. He's not waiting for perfection. He is perfection. He pursues his sheep. He will leave the 99 for you. 
Verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We see here written plainly the purpose behind John's gospel. The whole reason John wrote this theologically gorgeous narrative so that we may believe. That's why we call it believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life. As the band begins to make their way back up here, I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you guys that question again that we asked at the beginning. But this time I want you guys, I'm going to ask it a little differently. And so I want you guys to think about it through the lens of Scripture. Because so feelings are, are very important. They help us know what's going on underneath. But I want you guys to look at it through the lens of Scripture. When you're at your lowest, how does God see you? Not how do you feel God sees you. How, do you, how does God see you? Look at the disciples. How did he see them? These men abandoned him on what looked like the most horrifying day in human history. Even Thomas, in all of his boldness, ran away. Peter straight up claimed he didn't know him. So how does Jesus respond to that? What does Jesus do when his closest friends are hiding away in fear after they've left him? He jumps right in the middle of their pain and sorrow and speaks peace over them and gives them purpose. Jesus sees you and he wants you. That's, that's, I feel like we, we know that in our brain but I really, which I think is the case for a lot of the stuff that we read in Scripture. We know it in our brain, but it has got to penetrate our hearts. He wants you to believe. If God, the creator of the cosmos, didn't want you, he wouldn't have come down as a man to die for you. That would not have happened. If, he expect, if, it was, if it was completely on our backs to work our way to the point to where we could finally have a moment with Jesus, he would not have died for us. Jesus doesn't want you to tidy yourself up for him because you can't tidy yourself up for him. That's why he died on the cross for you. We are made clean in him. You can't make yourself whole. You can't give yourself purpose. Those are gifts from the Lord. The Lord that actively pursues you so that you would believe. The Lord that pursues you, meets you where you are. Those dark, 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 dark moments that I know that you guys have. I have them. Those dark, horrible, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm here. I don't even know if, I, 
He's there. He's with, he's with you. Not looking, being like, man, that's a bummer. He's with you in the pain. He took it already. The Lord your God goes with you wherever you go. That's not just the good stuff. That's not just the Disney worlds. That's the low, low, low stuff. He's there. I promise you he's there. And I know for an absolute fact he's there because scripture tells us that he's there. The Lord will actively pursue you because he wants you to believe. Would you all pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. That doesn't even feel like a strong enough word. I know know how broken I am. I know who, I know what I've done. I know that I am flawed and sinful and so flawed and broken. I am so thankful that despite my sin, you met me where I was. And not only are you with me, but you died for me. Lord, I pray that that penetrates our hearts this morning, Lord. That we know in those moments where we feel like you're not there, that you're there not absent-mindedly watching, but actively participating. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for the ability to know these truths, Lord, and that we can continue to rest in that truth, God. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen.